Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast about rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a senior lecturer in classics and ancient history at La Trobe University. And my guest is Dr. Sonia Worcester, a lecturer in literature and philosophy at Yale NUS in Singapore. This is episode LXXIX, Epicureanism. Epicureanism was an ancient philosophy founded in Athens, which became popular throughout the Roman world. It teaches that the greatest good is to seek modest pleasures, and this will lead to a state of tranquility. It is a meaning that has become lost in current uses of the word. Here's Sonia Worcester. Epicureanism today has strong connotations of luxury food and luxury alcohol and there are obviously a lot of magazines out there called Epicure and and particularly overindulgence overindulgence of food luxury food in particular and you're quite right here in Melbourne I think perhaps still our local newspaper has a section called Epicure that's That's right it does yes So these connotations have tended to give it a bad reputation, we might say, because of those associations with luxury, with overindulgence, with not really being concerned with the things that matter in life, only in yourself and feeding yourself, as it were. Now, would you say that these connotations are warranted? Is this the kind of way that it was perceived in antiquity? Well, it's not the way that Epicurus intended it to be perceived, He was a little bit cheeky in the sense that by choosing to say that the goal of Epicureanism was pleasure, um, or hedone as it is in Greek, he was pushing the envelope a little bit because he was almost, I think, trying to stir the pot a little bit and get people thinking. What he really meant by pleasure was not as we would think of pleasure as something a bit illicit and naughty. He thought of pleasure as a lack of anxiety and a lack of physical pain. And that's how he defined pleasure. So it might be something closer to comfort and a settled lifestyle rather than yes. pleasure itself. Although right. obviously the Greek word hedonia has given us the word hedonistic. Exactly. Which that's tends right. to mean you're only interested in excess and luxury and, and, that's right. and feeding your own needs. Yeah. And the image of that idea does actually come from antiquity, from hostile sources, people who didn't like Epicureanism and who wanted to misrepresent Epicureanism. Okay, well, we'll certainly talk about that hostile tradition in a moment. But before we get to that, could you tell us a little bit about who Epicurus was, when he lived, and what the basics of his philosophy were? Sure. So Epicurus lived in the third century in the Hellenistic period. And he's a contemporary with other philosophical schools like Stoicism and Cynicism. And it's actually quite important that they are called Stoicism, Cynicism, Epicureanism, because if we think about the way that we use those terms today, we use them to describe the way people act or behave. That actually tells you quite a lot about Hellenistic philosophy, including Epicureanism, and that this is a way of life. It's not as theoretical as, say, Aristotle or Plato. And... Hellenistic philosophers really had followers who actively lived a kind of lifestyle that they were promoting. And again, when I say lifestyle, I don't mean that in a frivolous sense. I mean, every aspect of their life, they tried to live in accordance with their school's teachings. So in the case of Epicurus, his school's teachings were actually quite on the surface straightforward. And he said there are really four things that you can do. It's called the tetrapharmakos or the fourfold remedy that would make you happier in life. So the first one of those is that you shouldn't fear the gods. 
don't fear death. What is good is easy to get and what is bad is of limited duration or easy to avoid. Okay, if only life were that easy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so these are the four precepts by which you should live. That's right. According to Epicurus. And the idea of having them in that kind of very short form like that is that, let's say you're in a situation and you're feeling a bit stressed or anxious, you're supposed to be able to kind of cite those four things to yourself. Yeah, so for example, if something bad were happening to you, you could reassure yourself that it would be short-lived. That's right. So if you're on an aeroplane, for example, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, and um, you get a you know, a warning or there's turbulence and that turbulence makes you nervous, you might say, well, even if something does happen to the aeroplane, I don't need to fear death because once I have died, my atoms will disperse and my soul will separate from my physical body and I won't be conscious anymore, so I won't know that I'm dead. I shouldn't be afraid of death. On a less extreme level, you might say to yourself, oh, there's turbulence on the aeroplane. Turbulence makes me nervous. That will be of limited duration, so I just need to wait it out and then it will be okay. So already I think we're seeing that this is in a way, the opposite of what we might associate with the word Epicureanism, yes. because in a way it is about maintaining a calm state of mind mm. as opposed to just lying on a couch and feeding your face. Absolutely. <laughs> Limits is a very key. Can you tell us what effect this would have on an Epicurean's relationship with religion and the gods? There were very controversial figures in antiquity for their attitude to the gods, and some critics of Epicureanism tried to say that they were atheists because the vast majority of ancient beliefs about the gods focused on on providence what role did the gods play in our lives and obviously people would go along to a temple and try and make a god happy by giving them an offering and in return they might want some help they really did believe that giving the god something would help them in the long run yeah so it's very much a quid pro quo, quid pro quo relationship exactly. with the gods that's right whereas epicureans said actually the gods they're real, they exist, although there's even some debate about whether they thought that. But yes, some Epicureans said, yes, the gods physically exist somewhere in the world, but they are role models for us. They have reached a state of happiness, eudaimonia. They are already free from anxiety and physical pain because they're immortal. Therefore, they're not interfering in human affairs. And thus, there is no such thing as providence. So they're more like icons, people who give us an ideal that's for the right. way that we yeah, should live, right. the gods. Which I can imagine would be very controversial. Very controversial, yes, world. that's right. You said that there were other philosophies rising at the same time, Stoicism and Cynicism, for instance. I think, just as a sideline, it's quite interesting that Epicureanism is the one that gets the name that's named after a person. Yes. And I don't know if that makes it special in any way. So we're following a cult leader. You probably it object is. to that no, term. No, no, no. He, he certainly was highly revered within the school and they actually celebrated his, I think on the 20th of every month, there was a celebration to do with Epicurus. He was a fundamental figure in the school, so it's no accident that it became Epicureanism as opposed to Stoicism, which was obviously named after the area where the Stoics would practice philosophy and the Cynics. They were named after their founding figure, but it also refers to their philosophy as being very pared back and living like dogs. Yes. So, so the word cynics comes from the Greek word exactly. that means dog. Yes. Are there theories about why these philosophies were rising at this point in the Hellenistic world in the third century BCE? There has been a lot of discussion about this. So for a long time, scholars said it was a reaction to the Hellenistic period where suddenly kings were in control and people felt they had less control over their lives. So they tried to seek control through philosophy. That view has been destabilized a little bit. 
and they obviously share a relationship to Socrates and his philosophical tradition of living the good life or trying to seek happiness. So they're not entirely removed from their cultural and historical and political context, but it's not the only reason for this inward-lookingness. It's also something that we've seen in philosophy before this. And it's presumably a reason that it's still interesting to us because this is something that we continue to do. Yes. Um, But perhaps before we talk about that in, in any detail... Could you tell us a little bit how we know about Epicureanism and especially how we know about Epicurus because we don't have any of his writing, do we? We've got some of it. So initially we only had what are called the curai doxai or core sayings or principal sayings which were handed down to us in Diogenes Laertius who's a writer who features different philosophies and he recorded these key teachings in that and they were designed for, I guess, entry-level students or new students into Epicurean philosophy. They're very sound, bitey, easy sayings to remember. So it's the introduction to Epicureanism. It's the introduction to Epicureanism. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, that's really all we had, and a Diogenes account and other people's versions like Cicero's account of Epicurean philosophy. And then when we discovered the Villa of the Papyri in the 18th century, then we found this huge library that has both some of Epicurus's works and works by a couple of other Epicurean philosophers as well. And they've helped clarify Epicurean philosophy for us. So these documents from Herculaneum mean that we have more information about Epicureanism. A lot more. And that helps in particular because what we had previously, as you mentioned, is from people like Cicero. And of course, that's not particularly favourable to Epicureanism. Cicero did not like Epicureanism. I mean, he didn't like Epicureanism for a couple of reasons, but one, he thought it was a popular philosophy. It was one of the earliest philosophies to be translated into Latin. So made too easy for people, is that his problem? Well, yes, and I think it appealed to the masses. And he was worried about the fact that, you know, you aimed for pleasure. He said, oh, that can be misunderstood. And he said, yes, we all know what they mean, technically, what Epicurus's definition of pleasure is. But if you want to, you can take that and interpret it as hedonism as opposed to Epicurus's definition of pleasure, which, as I said earlier, is freedom from pain and mental anxiety. So that's interesting. So Cicero understood exactly what Epicureanism was aiming at. He did. The the lack of pain. But he was worried that people would twist the words and use it as an excuse to just lounge around a lot. That's right. And And that would be a particular problem for Cicero and for late Republican Roman culture in particular, wouldn't it? Because, um, well, certainly from Cicero's point of view, political engagement is important. Key, yes, that's right. Keeping the Republic going. Is he right that Epicureanism might discourage you from political engagement? It does, but less actively than was initially thought and then one might initially think. So there's a saying that has been ascribed to Epicurus, live unknown which implies that you're supposed to kind of withdraw from the many and not be involved in political life. But then we've got some evidence that suggests that Epicureans recognise that some people didn't have that as an option, that that's not the way the world worked then. So it's an ideal. They practised it as Epicurean sages because they were sages. They were supposed to live the lifestyle that they were promoting, so to speak but they didn't necessarily expect everyone to follow that. Okay, so it might be a a bit like having monks who pursue a particular 
ascetic lifestyle, mm. but they don't necessarily expect everyone who follows that religion to live in poverty That's, in exactly yes. to exactly the same degree. Yes. So I've always learned Epicureanism was a problem for the Romans because it didn't really fit the at least elite Romans' perception of the need for Roman men to be involved in the military and politics. And if you're going to live without fame, then that counters a sort of central tenet of what Romans are aiming for, which is fame and glory. Yes. And that will then be the glory of the state. This is what I was taught as an undergrad, that Epicureanism was a minority interest for the Romans because it didn't really work within their socio-political context. Well, there have been scholars who've put together lists of people that they think may have been Epicurean amongst the Roman elite. So they've outed them. So they've outed them, so to speak. And, you know, some theorising that Julius Caesar and Brutus were Epicureans. And I'm not going to comment on that because I don't think there's enough evidence either way. I mean, there's no doubt that the idea of fame and glory are antithetical to Epicureans. But certainly someone like Philodemus of Gadara, whose works were discovered at Herculaneum, seems to make concessions for the fact that members of the Roman elite are going to be involved in politics. I think that he was trying to say, look, Epicureanism can help you be a better leader. You're not going to go off and become some fully-fledged Epicurean sage. Uh, Yes, it would be great if you do that. But, okay, this is the reality. You're not going to do that. So how can Epicurean philosophy help you navigate these anxieties and stresses and ethical pitfalls that you're going to encounter in politics? He's trying to make it something that will fit within the Roman context because the context it was created in doesn't exist anymore now that the Romans have taken over the Mediterranean and they have a different background, a different way of seeing the world. But if Epicureanism is going to be worth anything, then it needs to be able to deal with this situation as well. Would you say yes. that's fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. And I mean, yes, Epicurus himself had correspondence with rulers. So it's not like he was totally shut off from the world around him. And a lot of the sayings about withdrawal from the many and living unknown are more complex because, again, they're sound bites. So you don't get all the argumentation that went probably behind those and so we're left with a smaller picture and I think with Philodemus we can start filling that picture out a little bit more to understand that their relationship with politics and politicians was more nuanced than what we had once thought. So do you think there was a a kind of grudge match with Stoicism or is that just an impression that I've got from Cicero? So were they sort of rival teams, rival philosophies? They were rivals and they have a lot in common as well. What would you say they had in common? Okay, how they defined happiness was very different. But every area of your life had to accord with certain viewpoints to belong to these schools. They really work in tandem with each other. So a lot of the terminology they use, they might use a similar term for something, but then try and define it very differently to each other. Um, The idea of controlling your emotional state is probably the biggest one that they share in common. So their interest in emotions is, is their biggest crossover. That's certainly something I think most people will associate with stoicism, Mm. the idea that you don't give way to your emotions. That's right. We probably think of it in quite an inexact way. But what we mean by stoic is somebody who will stay stony-faced no matter what's happening to them. Whereas we would never associate that kind of limit on your emotions with Epicureanism if, if we associate anything with it. So is it a problem then that they're meant to be ethical lifestyles in, in that if you follow stoicism you can't follow epicureanism 
because they're, totally they're incompatible. Mutual, yeah. Even though you say they've got these similarities, it's like trying to be a Christian Hindu. Yes. I don't exactly. know if these religious parallels are necessarily appropriate. Obviously, they're not direct parallels. No. But you, you kind of have to choose one or the other. You can't Correct. double dip. And the competition between the two schools is actually really important for how they develop their philosophies and I think was integral for them working out a lot of details. So we see sometimes competition as a negative thing, but it was, as I said, very clarifying for the two schools. As part of this antagonism, perhaps, in Republican Rome between Stoicism and Epicureanism. Cicero is key in this. Could you read us out a quotation where he really has a dig at Epicureanism? So the first quote is from Cicero, a work called De Oratore, which is a theoretical work about oratory, what makes a good speech and so on. He says in it, of those which still remain, so he's talking there about the different philosophical schools that are still practiced today, the philosophy that has taken up the advocacy of pleasure. So that word in Latin is voluptas and it can be negative and it can be positive. So this is where Cicero is very clever with how he uses language because he picks a word that if you're an Epicurean, you could say, oh, you're trying to represent us negatively. And he can say, well, I've just used voluptas. What other word would I use to describe the Greek hedone? Although it may seem true to some, nevertheless is far from the man whom we are seeking and whom we want to counsel the Senate and to direct the leader of citizens. So this is where you get this divide between whether Epicureans can really offer advice or be a philosophy that's practiced by people who want to take part in public life. Um, And he says, first in wisdom and eloquence in the Senate, in the public assembly and in the popular causes. But no wrong will be done to their philosophies by us which of course is not at all what he's doing because he's absolutely trying to do wrong to their philosophy. So you're saying, I've got nothing against Epicureanism. They just don't belong here in the Senate. That's right, exactly. For it shall not be rejected from the place which it desires to occupy. And this word desire is very intentional, I think, because cupio in Latin is very much a negative type of desire. It implies something out of control almost. Yeah, it's associated with greed, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But in its gardens, it will be at peace. So this is referring to the fact that Epicurus in Athens lived in a garden. And often you see the term garden as a metonym for Epicurean philosophy. So rather than saying Epicurean philosophy, they call it the philosophy of the garden. With okay. Which makes sense in terms of Stoicism coming from the Stoa. Exactly. Where That's met. right. All right. So he's saying keep them in their place, not in our political That's buildings. Right. Keep it in the gardens where it will be at peace, where it wishes... Where also reclining gently and softly calls us off from the rostra, the courts and the curia, perhaps wisely, particularly in this current period of the Republic. So this is a work he wrote when the Republic was really struggling. And so he's saying, oh, maybe it's a legitimate viewpoint to withdraw from all this political crises at the moment. But the fact that he's used this term uh, molita and all these adverbs and delectate or delicate, sorry. It, so that's gently and softly. Yeah, which in English lose their strength. But molis in Latin is a very negative term. It's used to describe it, an effeminate man. And in Roman political context, that's a real denigration of someone's character. He's basically saying the Epicureans have been emasculated. So mm. they're not appropriate people to be leading or influencing the Republic. Exactly. Mm. I'm glad you've explained the vocabulary there because it really brings out how he's having a dig at Epicureanism. At the same time as being very clever, you're quite right, and saying, I've got nothing against them. 
if they're in their place, they're fine. And he has it in for particular figures. And you mentioned that there have been theories that people like Julius Caesar might have been Epicureans, but we just don't have enough information. But there were people who Cicero pointed the finger at for being Epicureans. Who's the main one that he has in his sights? favourite one to say was an Epicurean was Lucius Calpurnius Piso, who was consul in the year that Cicero was exiled. He's obviously angry at Piso for not standing up for him and allowing Clodius to have his way. And so he tries to use Piso's Epicureanism against him. And, of course, we don't have Piso's perspective, so we can't say for sure that he was an Epicurean. But if you do take Cicero at his word and say, yes, Piso was. So he's almost using Epicureanism as... It's a dirty word that he yes. can associate with his enemies. That's right. And he accuses Piso of you know, declining a triumph in the same speech. Of course, he also mentions the fact that Piso comes from this very old Roman family and that he's acting against all of the history of this old venerable family by taking up Epicureanism and that he uses it, Epicureanism as an excuse. You know, it sort of serves gross food at dinner parties and... Is Cicero the only anti-Epicurean voice we have? Because I would say, as someone who didn't study philosophy closely, but, you know, it was obviously mentioned when I did my classics undergrad, I had this idea that there was hardly anyone who liked Epicureanism, and what we've got is an entirely negative picture of it. But is that all from Cicero? Plutarch doesn't like Epicureanism either, to the extent that he even wrote a text called On the Fact That Epicurus Actually Makes a Good Life Impossible. So that's a very There's only one way of reading that. That's right. There's only one way of reading that. (laughs) Again, both of them are coming from a different philosophical perspective. And so there's good reason why they didn't like Epicurean philosophy because they take issue with its rigor. They feel that they haven't justified themselves philosophically. There's similarities, crossover between the way that they both view Epicurean philosophy. So I read that quote out before by Cicero who said that Epicureanism and public life are impossible. And this is certainly the perception that Plutarch has as well. And so he says, for example, in a speech against an Epicurean, something called Against Colotes, he says, since in fact they who destroy laws and governments destroy human life. So it's a very extreme statement. If Epicurus and Metrodorus do this by dissuading their disciples from politics, by hating those who take part in government, by speaking badly of the first and wisest lawmakers, and by recommending contempt of laws if there is not the fear of the whip and punishment. So he makes them sound like anarchists, that they want no law and order, they want That's no government. Right. Which is not true at all. They yeah. actually have a strong social compact. So they're not the ultimate libertarians. Or no, they're like not that. libertarians. <laughs> they sort of have a view of, if I don't harm you, then in theory you shouldn't harm me back. That would be nice if it were true, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. And that's obviously one of the reasons why some people say their view on uh, this social compact is a little bit weak. So what does that mean, perhaps, for us looking at Epicureanism now? Does it have anything useful to offer us still? I think in some ways people are very familiar with Stoicism, but I think if they knew more about Epicureanism, they'd actually find it something that they could identify with because I think in this age of materialism, the idea of limit, you know, not stressing yourself out so much in order to get more money and more goods is an appealing message. I think that their view on, say, The gods is something that is more palatable to a modern audience to say that the gods don't control our whole lives. That we need to take responsibility. That we need to take responsibility for it and that we have free will 
is a an idea that people would uh, understand and identify with. A lot of their views about emotional theory is something that we would understand and be comfortable with. So unlike the Stoics, who tend to be a little bit more hardline about emotions, and that's obviously what they're known for, Epicureans seem to have had a more tripartite view of the emotions. So emotions are something that are natural. We all experience them. Again, it's this idea of limit. You just don't want to let your emotions go crazy. But you also have to look at what's causing your emotions. So the cause of your emotion is very important. If your emotion of anger, for example, is justified by someone really harming your life or your happiness, they would see that as a justified emotion. But if someone borrowed your headphones and gave them back three days later and you were just out of your mind angry about that, they would say that's completely unnecessary kind of anger. Then there's a kind of medium anger where you might get angry because someone's taken your bottle of wine or something like that. You know, you don't really need that bottle of wine that badly. And you can replace it. And you can replace replace it quite easily. Mm. Okay. And if you get very, very angry, do they see it as harm to yourself, harm to your soul? Is that the right way to Yeah, I guess it causes you mental anxiety. There is legitimate anger. And the reason why sometimes it's legitimate to get angry is you want someone to not do that to you again. Mm. So you don't have to experience that mental anxiety again. Does Epicureanism go as far as then saying, what you should do is cut off from that person if they do that to you, or is it not prescriptive in they that way? They don't seem to pres- talk about that. Um, they more talk about the idea that you just want to make sure the person doesn't do it again, so therefore punishment can sometimes come into it. You don't punish someone just for the fun of it, and you should never, ever, ever enjoy punishing someone. Sometimes you need to do it so it doesn't happen again. And finally, this question has been going around in my mind for a good 20 years, which is also something that an undergraduate lecturer said to me. He was being quite facetious at the time to defend him. He was trying to give us the kind of the two minute definition of Stoicism and Epicureanism, which is unfair to both of them. He said to me, if your friend dies and you're a Stoic, then you feel pain, but you don't show it. If you're an Epicurean, you wouldn't have had the friend in the first place. That's really unfair. <laughs> I, wrong. I thought it probably <laughs> Friendship would be. is actually the most important social relation for an Epicurean. It supersedes family because a good Epicurean friend will be there to counsel you. You'll be there to counsel them. They can help you when you're in a time of difficulty and you can help them when they're in a time of difficulty. It's a lot of give and take. Some people say that they didn't feel any genuine, effective emotion for their friend, and I would disagree with that. I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest Epicureans had real feelings for their friends. They, they did love them. Okay, I'm, I'm glad you say that, Sonia. I'm glad that we can still be friends even though we're Epicureans. <laughs> thank you very much That's for right. that. Thank you. That's Dr. Sonia Worcester, a lecturer in literature and philosophy at Yale NUS in Singapore. And you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it through Apple Podcasts and please leave a review. You can like the Emperors of Rome podcast on Facebook and you can follow us both on Twitter. Sonia is at Dr. Sonia Worcester and I'm at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. In the next episode of Emperors of Rome, we'll learn more about one of our sources, the historian and senator Dio Cassius. But until then, I'm Rhiannon Evans. You've been fantastic and thanks for listening.